You're listening to Shameless Potpourri with Joe Heschmeyer, a production of Catholic Answers. Welcome back to Shameless Potpourri. I'm Joe Heschmeyer. So, traditionally, January 6th is the day on which we celebrate the Epiphany of Jesus. And mostly this celebrates the arrival of the three wise men or the magi or the three kings as they come bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this historically, this holiday has been a pretty big deal. It's also one of very few events that Matthew writes about in the infancy of Jesus. And so I want to ask a few questions, like why should we care about this and what does this passage mean? But before I get into the particular questions I want to explore, I want to just give a little bit of the biblical basis. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, We're told that when Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And it's a very strange passage when you think about it. Who are these guys who've shown up from somewhere in the east? And why are they going to tell Herod that they're coming to worship a king? Now, this triggers the massacre of the innocents. Herod believes that Jesus is a rival, and he goes to kill all of the uh, children to and under in the area of Bethlehem. But we're going to ignore, actually, huge chunks of all of this, because there's so much just in three verses, or four, four verses. This is verse 1 and 2, and then jumping forward to verse 10 and 11, that the Magi saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. They go into the house, they see the child with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So there's a lot of questions we could ask. I want to ask four. Number one, okay, who are these guys? Are these wise men? Are they major? Are they kings? What does all that mean? Number two, why should we care about them? Like, why does Matthew think this is such an important detail that he includes it in the infancy narrative? Why does the church think it's such an important detail that this has historically been a major feast day? And then third, did the Magi really worship Jesus? I mean, look, these look like non-Jews. These look like Gentile pagans who've come in and then they start worshiping Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity as God. Are we really to believe that some of the first Christ followers are non-Jews? And that this is told to us in the Gospel of Matthew, which is usually considered like the most Jewish of the four Gospels. And then fourth, why these gifts? Like why does Matthew think it's important to specify that they give him gold and frankincense and myrrh? What is the kind of theological significance of those gifts? Why give those particular gifts? You know, they don't just give him a target gift card. These are thoughtful, like intentional gifts that mean something. So with that in mind, Let's get to the first question. Who are the wise men or the magi or the kings? And there's kind of, I think, three phases you go through in your understanding of this story. A lot of times if you grew up hearing the story more than just reading it in the Gospel of Matthew, you probably had in mind three actual kings, like the king of England, that there are just kings of three different countries who team up and go exploring looking for the newborn king who is the king of kings. And you see that depicted uh, in a lot of art. But then eventually, hopefully, you read the Gospel of Matthew and think, wait a second. It just says wise men from the East. 
And so that brings you to what I call phase two, where you say, oh, I guess these aren't kings. These are just like wise people. Or maybe you'll say, well, they're magicians. Or maybe you'll say they're space wizards. If that last claim sounds insane, it's coming from somewhere, a YouTube channel called Bible Unbound, which presents the story of the arrival of the Magi this way. I'm going to give just a couple little excerpts. What if I told you that the three kings that visited the baby Jesus were not kings at all? Not even wise men, but actually space wizards? So you might be saying, um, that sounds kind of crazy. What do you mean by that? Well, here's what he means by that. These men are, in the Greek, called magi, the plural form of the word magus, the root of the modern English word magic. Historians have come to realize that the men traveling by starlight to find the Christ who was being born were most likely a cast of Persian sorcerers who are referred to as magi in other ancient historical sources. The problem with phase two, you know, oh, I guess they're not kings at all, they're just wise men or space wizards or whatever, is that it goes too far. And this isn't just some later kind of argument. Tertullian, uh, early 200s, right, like the very beginning of the 200s, says that the East, on the one hand, generally held the Magi to be kings. Now, he's writing fairly close to the time all of this stuff happens. And he's not just talking about, like, the events of the Bible, but just kind of the general way the Magi were understood and reckoned. Well, is Tertullian right? Was there some sense in which the Magi were understood as sharing in royal authority as wise men? Well, there's some biblical evidence that points to the answer being yes. In the book of Esther, uh, the king uh, consults the wise men on a matter of law. So in context, his queen did not show up when she was expected to in royal court. She just refused the summons, and he wants to know what can he do in response and what should he do in response. And so we're told the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being in the list seven men, and describes him as the seven princes of Persia and Media. So you'll notice there that the same men are referred to as, on the one hand, wise men, and on the other hand, princes. Now, the underlying Hebrew used there is a word that is used some 400 times in the Old Testament, and in about 208 times is translated as prince or princes. It can also be captain or captains, chief, ruler, governor, keeper, principal, general, lords, you get the idea. But it shows some sharing in royal authority. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, think about the kind of mindset of the ancient world. If you've got men who are very wise, this could mean one or both of two things. Number one, they understand the laws and the procedures and the governance really well. And or number two, they understand the spiritual realm really well. They're magicians. They are fortune tellers. They are able to predict the future. They're able to interpret dreams. They're able to do all of this stuff with like the spiritual realm. If you've got those kind of people in your realm and you're the king, you're probably going to give them a lot of responsibility, right? Like you're probably going to say, all right, I'm going to rely on the guy I know who can read the future. And we actually have examples of this happening 
in the Bible itself. Because one of these people, from a Jewish perspective, is Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, the one who goes down into Egypt and he's sold into slavery, but he can interpret dreams. And so in Genesis 41, after he interprets Pharaoh's dreams correctly, Pharaoh says to him in verse 38, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph is, for practical purposes, a wise man and something like a king. The next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 42, describes him as governor over the land. So there is a true royal authority, a gubernatorial authority, that is tied here uh, to Joseph being a wise man. It's not just automatic, it's just that the Pharaoh recognizing his wisdom gives him this kind of authority. And we see this elsewhere as well. In the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. He commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stand before him, but they're unable to do it. So these are literally magi. They are magicians, enchanters, sorcerers. But because they can't successfully perform their task, he's furious and commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. That's Daniel 2, verse 12. So you'll notice the wise men and magicians, these are interchangeable kind of concepts. Well, Daniel is a wise man who's able to interpret dreams. And so the king rewards him after he successfully interprets the dream. Jump down to verse 48 and 49. King Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel even asks the king and is given the ability to appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remains at the king's court. So you can see that there's a real sharing in the authority of government that, that happens there. So it's not crazy to imagine that the Magi are something king-like in their authority. Now, it's true the phase one kind of understanding where you're just imagining something like the King of England, that's too simplistic. It's not quite that. But it's also too simplistic to say, therefore, it's nothing. They're, they're just, you know, these smart guys. Like, this is just the university professors who are out there on a mission to go find the Messiah. No, it's not that. They're not space wizards. They're not university professors. These are magi, wise men, who would have shared probably in some kind of authority or governance or have some kind of responsibility uh, where they were tied to the state in a little more uh, direct kind of way. So that's the first question. Second question then is, why, uh, why do the Magi matter? So this is a clip from Smithsonian Channel called How to Understand the Three Wise Men, Frankincense, and Myrrh. And I think it does an okay, but ultimately inadequate job of answering that question. And I'll show you what I mean. I'm just going to, again, I'm going to show you two quick clips from it. For Luke, the shepherds are important symbols of Jesus' humble beginning. But Matthew tells a very different story. In his version, there are no shepherds at all. In their place are the famous wise men from the east following a star. So it's a juxtaposition. Oh, you know, basically... Luke cares about the poor people, but Matthew wants to say about the rich people. And it gets back to this a little later on in the same clip. What does Luke say about the three kings? Nothing at all. 
The familiar story of the Nativity, passed down through generations, is a blend of both Luke and Matthew. Together they show a Messiah for all of humanity, rich and poor. Look, that's not all wrong. It's just really incomplete and kind of misleading. Because it's true that Luke focuses on the shepherds who are poor, while Matthew focuses on the magi who are rich. And rich-poor was an important division in the first century as it is today and basically in every age. But there's another overlay that isn't even touched on in this description that's also really important because the shepherds are Jewish and the Magi, by all appearances, are pagan Gentiles. Now, you will find people who dispute that, but I think the best argument is that they are. And this is really important because as as tense as rich-poor relations were and could certainly be, Jewish-Gentile relations were incredibly tense in this period as well. You may know the Jews, not long after this, revolt against their Roman kind of oppressors, and this leads to the destruction of the temple in the year 70 in the diaspora where the Jews are sent off to kind of the four corners of the empire. So it's striking uh, that we find these worshipers of Jesus who are both rich and poor and both Jewish and Gentile. These are important things that are being revealed about, and this is where I think the Smithsonian account gets it quite right, that Jesus comes for all. And so this is also, by the way, the fulfillment of a lot of Old Testament prophecy. In Genesis chapter 18, God describes how Abraham is going to be made a great and mighty nation, and significantly, not just a great and mighty nation for Israel, but also that all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him. And then this is continued in places like Isaiah chapter 56, when we're told about the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. And how these Gentiles, right, these foreigners uh, will make offerings to the Lord and their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on the Lord's altar. Why? Because his house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Now, Jesus, if you remember, in the purification of the temple, the driving out of the money changers, references this passage, that this is the fulfillment of that. And the early Christians got, like an important part of what's going on with the epiphany, with the adoration of the magi, with the coming of the wise men, is that it's showing that Christianity is for everybody. And so in Western European art, like medieval art, you see this representative in a few ways that I think are really kind of fascinating. So for instance, historically, there was a tradition of having three different ages of the three magi. So you'd have a young man, a middle-aged man, and then an old man to show this is for everybody, right? And then after the Council of Florence, when the East and the West uh, try to reunite, we find shortly thereafter that an Italian painter using the Byzantine emperor from the East as a model for one of the three kings or the three wise men. And around this same time, the 15th century or so, you also start to see more and more uh, African uh, magi. So one of the three magi, usually Balthazar, will be depicted as of African origin. And, you know, by today's standard, that might be kind of unremarkable. You know, you've got a multicultural cast of characters. But in the 15th century, this is really kind of striking stuff that they would realize, even in an age which is uh, ethnically kind of self-centered and becomes pretty racist pretty quickly here, that there's still this recognition that Christianity cannot just be a European thing. It cannot just be a white thing. 
even as you have all of these white New Testament characters in Western European paintings, there's also this recognition, yeah, this is bigger than us. This is bigger than one nation or people or ethnic group or one age or anything like that, because Christ comes for all. That is the message of the Magi. That is what Matthew is showing us by having these three Magi from the East being among the first adorers of Jesus Christ. This is profound, and it's striking that our ancestors got that point. Now, I mentioned something earlier I want to return to, that Epiphany isn't just historically about the adoration of the Magi. It is today, but historically, there were actually three events uh, that were all tied together. This was the coming of the Magi, the wedding feast of Cana, and the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And you might be saying, what is that? Like, what do those three things have in common? What those three things have in common is that they're all examples of an epiphany. Here's what I mean. So I've been focusing on the major event of the epiphany, which is that the magi, the so-called kings, the wise men, come to Jesus to worship him. But there's two other events that were historically celebrated on this day as well. On January 6th, the church historically also celebrated the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan and the wedding feast of Canaan. Now today, those three are separated. And so you'll see the baptism of, Jordan, of Jesus in the Jordan is coming up and the wedding feast of Canaan doesn't have its own feast day anymore. But why were those three things ever together? Well, it's right there in the name Epiphany. An Epiphany is a revelation. It's a manifestation. It's a striking appearance. And so this was the festival, the manifestation of Christ. I had a, uh... An epiphany? No, no. No, no, I had, like, religious proportions to it. So, right, that's what an epiphany is. The revelation, that kind of religious sense. And this is something that we see prophesied. So, you already heard the Smithsonian account, you know, Luke doesn't mention the Magi at all. But Luke does present Jesus in the temple. And in the presentation of Jesus in the temple... Simeon, an old man, holds him up and proclaims this prayer of thanksgiving that the Christ is coming to the world, basically. That he has seen the salvation which God has prepared for all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to thy people Israel. And so why do we consider the adoration of the Magi as an epiphany? Well, because it's exactly that. This is the light of revelation to the Gentiles, in this case, pretty literally with the star. But in addition to that, you also have in the baptism of Jesus, the heavens opening up and the revelation, the epiphany, thou art my beloved son, with thee I am well pleased. And then the wedding feast of Cana, the third of those events, we're told in John's gospel, this was the first of the signs that Jesus did and manifested his glory. So it's the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So these are three really pivotal moments in the life and ministry of Jesus that kind of manifest him to the world, that reveal him. And that's why we refer to these three collectively as the epiphany or the theophany, the revelation of God. So there you go. The next question is a pretty simple one. Did the Magi really worship Christ? If this is really true, that these are Gentiles, these are not Jews, these are people who didn't grow up uh, believing in the God of Israel, is it really plausible that they would go to this little town of Bethlehem and find Jesus, and then bow down and worship him, as the Gospel of Matthew appears to say? Well, I think we can answer that question pretty definitively, yes. Here's why. Seneca the Younger, who's a first century Roman, 
Uh, he really is contemporary with Jesus. He's born around the year 4 BC. He lives to the year 56. In letter 58, he makes mention of the fact that when Plato died, he died exactly on his 81st birthday, and that there were wise men from the East, their magi, right, who happened to be in Athens at the time, who sacrificed to him after his death, believing that his length of days was too full for a mortal man, since he had rounded out the perfect number of nine times nine. Now, there's a lot there, and it's kind of a strange passage, but here's what you need to know. First, it was considered to be a sign of divine favor for someone to be born and die on the same day or to be conceived and to die on the same day. If you watch last week's video about how did we end up with December 25th, that's actually the same kind of story. There was an early Christian belief that Jesus was conceived on the same day that he died, March 25th, and then was born nine months later. So we here find this in regards to Plato, that he was born and died on his birthday. And if, excuse me, if Seneca is to, believe, is to be believed, he was worshipped by the Magi. They sacrificed to him. Which is to say, these are people who are uh, dabbling in all kinds of spiritual things. Some of those probably dangerous, some of those probably good. And they're certainly open to and looking for the divine. And so if they're willing to look at someone who lived a brilliant life like Plato and then dies on his birthday and say, aha, this might be sign enough that this man is a god, well, then it's certainly not strange or surprising that other magi would also say, okay, all of this evidence points to this star over Bethlehem and this you know, astrological kind of data uh, pointing to this being the new king particularly if they're combining whatever their astrological knowledge is with any kind of knowledge of the Jewish scriptures. Because even if they weren't practicing Jews, they probably were exposed to some amount of Jewish scripture in the same way they were exposed to people like Plato. They were brilliant, well-read individuals who, in this case, probably also benefited from the Babylonian captivity where there'd been an exposure to Judaism in the East. So all that's to say it's not really shocking or surprising that they should worship uh, the true God because these were religious seekers, among other things. Okay, so now to the question many of you may be really here to see. What did the Magi's gifts mean? Now, Canada Moss at University of Notre Dame, I think she does a very good job of pre presenting the case succinctly. This is from that same Smithsonian video that I quoted earlier. The gifts brought by the Magi all have symbolic significance. Gold, which is a, a tool of wealth, symbolizes kingship and monarchy. Frankincense, which was used in religious rituals, symbolizes the priesthood. And myrrh, which is a herb that was used in burial rituals, symbolizes that there will be death in the near future. If you've ever made it past the first verse of We Three Kings of Orientar, the 19th century Christmas carol, you may have already heard that. And it turns out there's actually good historical and biblical evidence that those are the three meanings of the gifts. So let's go into each one of them one by one pretty quickly just to say what's kind of a biblical basis for understanding it this way. We'll start with the gold. Why would we connect gold with the kingship of Christ? Well, as I said, we three kings, I'm going to quote in each case here the relevant passage from that carol. And here... One of the Magi says, born a king on Bethlehem Plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. 
And that is a very good biblical understanding of the prophecies in places like Psalm 72. Psalm 72 begins, Give the king thy justice, O God, and thy righteousness to the royal son. It is a royal psalm pretty explicitly. And in verse 10, it says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. And one gift in particular is mentioned. You can probably guess which one. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Now, Tertullian, in the passage I mentioned earlier, uh, cites this, and he points this passage as a prophecy of the Magi, saying, let those Eastern Magi be believed Dowering with gold and incense, the infancy of Christ as a king. And the infant has received the power of Damascus without battle and arms. So he's combining this psalm with the prophecy in Isaiah 8, which we're not even going to get into. But the point here is pretty simple and straightforward. Kings are honored with gold. Gold is the currency of the realm. And if you want to honor the king, you pay him tribute. And tribute is being paid in a very literal sense of financial. That's the first gift. The second one is frankincense. And frankincense, the carol goes, frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him God on high. So frankincense is something offered as an incense, it's right there in the name, incense, offered to God, right? Like if gold is what you give to the king, incense is what you give to God. And we see this in a few different places in the Old Testament. So most particularly, we have this prophecy of the Magi in Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 begins, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So notice there the reference as well to the kings. This is not just something ignorant Christians came up with this notion of kings, uh, you know, being like royal authorities or a representative of the nations is pretty clearly found in places like Isaiah 60. We'll jump down now to verse six, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The camel, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. So we already saw the prophecy about gold from Sheba, but now we also see frankincense. Now you might be wondering, what's the significance of Sheba here? I mean, several different locations are mentioned, but this one's getting mentioned repeatedly. Well, here you got to know a little more Old Testament background. In 1 Kings chapter 10, King Solomon uh, is, you know, the son of David, the literal biological immediate next generation son of David. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came up to consult with him because Solomon was himself a wise man king. Now in verse 10, she then rewards his brilliance by giving the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again, we're told, came such an abundance of spices as these which the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now, why does this matter? Because Solomon is being given these great rewards because he's a wise man and a king. And so Jesus 
is being given these rewards, these gifts, by wise men and kings, suggesting he's something even higher than this. So this is all really significant and really loaded. Well, the other thing, as I already alluded to, is frankincense is an incense and is offered to God. In Exodus chapter 30, there's a special spice being described. It's described as a holy scent that only uh, can be used for holy things. And it is made, amongst other things, of frankincense. So it begins in verse 34, and then if you jump down to verse 36, we're told that you can put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where God will meet with you. It shall be for you most holy. And it was absolutely forbidden upon pain of excommunication for anyone else to make that scent for themselves. You cannot just wear incense like this as a perfume. Now, there's also a little bit of foreboding. So you have, in, in giving the baby Jesus gold, you're honoring him as king. In giving him frankincense, you're honoring him as God. But you're also perhaps doing a little bit more than that. Why? Because frankincense was not just offered to God in kind of a generic way. It had a particular purpose. It was placed on the cereal offering or the grain offering to God. And so in Leviticus chapter 2, for instance, when anyone brings a cereal offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And then they will then offer it up on the altar and it's described as an offering by fire, a pleasing odor to the Lord. So we see something very Eucharistic. We see something very sacrificial in associating frankincense with Jesus, that he is both God to whom you make offering and also the one who is the perfect offering. Now, frankincense isn't just like sometimes used in this way. Frankincense has this association in the Jewish mind with sacrificial offering. And we see this in a couple places. In Isaiah 43, verse 23, God says, You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not been burdened, I, excuse me, I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. So you'll notice the same thing is described four different ways burnt offerings, sacrifices, offerings, and frankincense. That's how much frankincense was associated with the sacrificial offering. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 20, God asked, To what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. So there, frankincense from Sheba is very explicitly tied in with the idea of a sacrificial or burnt offering. So when we read the gift of frankincense as being about sacrificial offering. It's true. You can find ancient references to frankincense being used for something else, but it has this very strong connection to the sacrificial offering made to God. And Jesus embodies that perfectly, both as God and as the perfect offering to God. That then leads to the third gift. You know, but wait, there's myrrh. The gold and frankincense were foretold in the Old Testament. But when the Magi show up, they don't just show up with gold and frankincense. They have this third gift that you don't see mentioned in Isaiah, that you don't see mentioned in the Psalms. And it's quite shocking. It's myrrh. Why is it shocking? Well, we get that, again, pretty clearly from the carol. Myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume, breathes the life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Myrrh is an embalming spice. Now, it, it smells fragrant. This is why you use it. 
So it sometimes it's used for other things, but it has a strong association with preparing a body for burial. And in fact, this is exactly what happens to Jesus. In John chapter 19, after Jesus dies, Nicodemus comes and takes his body and he brings with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds worth. The point here is that you cannot separate the wood of the manger from the wood of the cross. You cannot separate Christmas from Easter because Jesus comes into the world to die. Now he does many, many other things, but you cannot understand why he's coming into the world without understanding that he's coming into the world to solve the problem of sin and that the chief way he solves the problem of sin is Good Friday. It is dying on the cross. And so take these three things together. You have the gold, you have the frankincense, and you have the myrrh. And what you have in this perfect offering the Gentiles are bringing to the Lord as had been prophesied that they would do is exactly what the hymn, the carol, We Three Kings says. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Those are the three dimensions of Jesus Christ that the Magi reveal in their gifts. And this is why it matters that the Magi come. And this is why we celebrate that holiday. It's why we may even give one another gifts on this day. So I encourage you, if you aren't someone in the past who's taken the Feast of the Epiphany, January 6th, very seriously, or whatever day your church or your denomination or your group celebrates it on, take it more seriously. Read Matthew chapter 2. Try to understand why the Magi came and why it matters that these Gentiles who had been eagerly trying to find God in maybe many wrong places stumble upon him here in Bethlehem. For Seamus Popery, I'm Joe Heschmeyer. God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Epiphany. Thank you for listening to Shameless Popery, a production of the Catholic Answers Podcast Network. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcast.com or search Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts.